Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today is a unique episode, um, and it's a slightly different format. I brought on an author today, John D. Simone, uh, who's written a book about the history of California. Uh, in our conversation, we talk a lot about agriculture, the Central Valley, Cesar Chavez, and the grape strikes. Um, there's lots of interesting stuff. It's kind of out of chronological order, but there's still a lot to learn here. I hope you enjoy. Uh, welcome to the History of California podcast. Uh, today we have a special guest with us, John D. Simone. Uh, John D. Simone is an author of a new book called The Road to Delano. Um, he's a fan of our podcast, and I brought him on to talk about his new novel, um, about California history, looking specifically at the Central Valley, um, and just to talk about historical research in general. So welcome, John. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jordan. All right. So uh, what, uh, why Delano? What was, what was interesting about Delano to you? Well, um, Delano is is interesting um, because that is where Cesar Chavez decided to settle to um, organize an agricultural union, something that had never been done successfully in California and really um, nationally. And what he he settled in that little town it was a just little dusty town, probably eight thousand people, growers on one side and and Hispanics and workers on the other side um, because he wanted to organize migrant workers, but it's very difficult because they're always moving. So, but in, but in the table grape industry, which is the the hub is Delano, uh, workers tend to settle and live all year round because grape grapevines have to be tended all year round. So Delano is um, central to the grape, table grape growing industry, as opposed to the wine grape uh, uh, industry, which is further north. And it became a, uh, it's a little town that would be totally unnoticed. You drive through it on the 99 in probably three seconds. Mm -hmm. And um, if it were not for Cesar Chavez and Larry Italong, uh, who organized the Filipino workers um, there in the sixties? Yeah, yeah. It is. It is funny how there are all these little towns along the ninety nine, which you can just drive through, um, and they have such rich histories that you just, you know, that are just not uh, uh, covered in the same way that uh, you know bigger cities in California are. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the grape strikes um, that are a part of of your book and? Uh, what interested you about those in particular? Well, I'd always been a student of California history going back to, um, you know, California has a rich history, but it's not really that long in terms of um, American history. Um, you know, started with the gold rush in the 1850s, but California really didn't take off until the uh, railroads were built. Mm -hmm. So in uh, 1869, 1870, the Central uh, Pacific Railroad um, joined up with the Union Pacific, and that really began to open up the agricultural basin we call now the Central Valley, the San Joaquin Valley. Uh, very early, 
as farmers began to come over the mountains instead of going into the three-month journey around the Horn um, uh, South America, they discovered that the topsoil in the San Joaquin Valley is some of the deepest in the world. And it extends for a hundred miles and more uh, across this flat land. It's the most perfect agricultural climate for fruits and vegetables uh, in the world. Um, so the Central Pacific built the railroad down the, um, down the spine of California down the rural spine, not down from, you know, from San Francisco to LA, that came later. Uh, and each one of these stops became a little town. And there's a whole nother story about the railroads in California, but Delano is a stop that the, um, the um, railroad said, okay, there's a lot of flat farmland around here. This would be perfect. We can bring farmers here. And Delano is named after the interior secretary of that time, who happened to be Delano. So agriculture is, has a deep roots in um, the development. After the gold rush ended and easy gold was, was hard to find, agriculture became the gold of California early on. Yeah. And so grapes uh weren't the first crop first it was um uh, wheat hundreds and hundreds oh, i say thousands of acres of wheat and you can still uh see those um old pictures of of mule um mule teams uh, pulling these large harvesters across grapes of uh, wheat and um there's a novel written about that the octopus about the the um, uh, the train, how uh, the Central Pacific became the Southern Pacific and developed the farming communities and uh, cheated the farmers, et cetera, et cetera. You know, but, and not to interrupt, but just it's it's funny if you if you just even go back a hundred years um, and you and you visit the Central Valley, you wouldn't recognize a lot of things. No. You know, and and we I've, I've talked about in the podcast. Um, um, some of the Yokuts tribes in the Central Valley and how they depended upon these uh, uh, tule reeds uh, that grew near lakes. Um, and you drive through the Central Valley now, and there's other than the aqueduct, there's not really water. Um, but just 100 years ago, 150 years ago, there was um, giant lakes that were part of the topography of the Central Valley. And that's just, it's totally changed. Well, it's, it's changed, you know, through um, through time, through uh, environment, uh, but also through um, the needs of agriculture to develop it, and the needs of LA for water, LA and San Francisco, as these big metropolises started started. Um, but there was never enough water in the Delano, Delano area, and you know, up through um, what we would call the San Joaquin Valley. There was never enough water for fruits and vegetables. So prior to that, it was mainly wheat and corn. So once irrigation came in, once the farmers uh, figured out how to create uh, water districts, um, import water, um, primitive aqueducts, then the grape industry came. That would have been in the, the 20s and the 30s. And in, that Steinbeck has written about that. Mm -hmm. And um, 
prior to that. So there's always been a wave of immigrants that have uh, worked these fields. And it's always been, it's, it's a different type of farming from the Midwest. It's not, wasn't family farming in the beginning. It was really factory farming. Uh, huge sections of land, multiple sections of land. A section of land is 640 acres. And um, uh, farmers would come in and, and buy it up cheap. So the, um, you know, first the, the Chinese migrant workers left over from the railroads were, were there, and then the Japanese, and then the, uh, the Okies in the 30s that Steinbeck wrote about. Mm-hmm. And um, World War II, the Bracero mo- movement came in, and that was importing um, uh, peons. <clears throat> Peon is not a derogatory word. It was a word that means that the worker was tied to the hacienda almost in a feudal type situation. And um, these were shipped in and they worked in camps. And then uh, Cesar Chavez started organizing in the 50s. He, he was a migrant worker, like his, um, his parents lost their land in the 30s, in the 40s, excuse me. He was a migrant worker with his family, had an eighth grade education. He understood um, the the difficulties that the migrant workers has because he lived it. And he met a, uh, a, a gentleman, um, uh, Alinsky, Saul Alinsky. And Saul Alinsky recruited him and to work uh, with the CSO, a community service organization, organizing, going into poor communities, uh, helping them to register for votes, for, um, getting benefits, that type of thing. He was an excellent organizer, and um, absolutely. Famous perfect. book. What's what's that famous book of Saul Alinsky's? I can't remember. I read it in college when I was yeah. going to you know rules rules um, rules, um, rules for rebels. Is it? I think yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah, I remember it was it was it was on my uh, kind of revolutionary reading list when I was in college. Yeah, and you know he's. He's, um, he's been vilified, you know, as a communist, a socialist. He was neither of those. And I think what's, um, uh, what's marred his reputation in conservative circles is that, you know, he, he attributes the first, the first rebel to Satan. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he gives him a, a, a title quote um, in the beginning. But Saul Linsky was, was a... Um, uh, a man who just went into poor communities and helped them organize. He didn't have a socialist agenda. He didn't have a progressive agenda. He didn't have a communist agenda. Um, he believed in democracy and he was help trying to help it work for everyone, the poor. And, and in those days, you know, we see a divide now between the rich and the poor and the 1%. But in those days, uh, in the twenties and thirties, there was a big divide between the rich and the poor. And, um, much bigger, much more noticeable. Today we have a middle class, uh, which didn't exist then. So um, when Cesar Chavez spent maybe about eight years organizing and with the CSO, but his heart never left the farm workers. And um, he made a a decision in the early 60s um, to try to form a union. But he was a student. He only had an eighth grade education, but he was a student of his times. He knew that the farm workers had um, 
uh, the efforts to organize farm workers had always failed because the growers had the power to foment violence. And then when the farm workers struck back in revenge, um, they would call in the sheriff or the National Guard. And that, that is what um, Steinbeck wrote about in the 30s and 40s, particularly with the Associated Growers. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the time we get to the 60s, uh, the Associated Growers aren't around anymore. But the working conditions of the farm workers are just as bad. And uh, he begins organizing a union in 1962 on the principles of nonviolence. Um, He appealed to his religious beliefs. He appealed to his um, to the beliefs of um, that he learned from a Catholic priest about how nonviolence has been used in the past, <clears throat> but nonviolence had never been used in a labor movement. So that was what was really unique and what appealed to me. Mm-hmm. And um, it's so it was the <clears throat> one of the tactics of the growers, which it was a strategic move, is they always kept their workforces segregated. So you had a, a large Filipino contingent. Mm-hmm. a large uh, Mexican-American contingent. And then you had um, others that would have been the leftovers from the Okies and um, refugees from the, uh, from the Southern sharecroppers that moved in. And when one group rebelled and walked out, they would just bring in another group. So they were smart that way. It was, mm-hmm. they, so Larry Italon leading the Filipino movement in around Delano, mm-hmm his people were fed up with a certain grower and they just said, we can't take it anymore. The working conditions are horrible. So they called a strike 1965. Cesar Chavez had been organizing for three years. It was a nascent union. It was really then just called an alliance. Um, And uh, he wasn't ready to strike, but the Filipinos appealed to him and said, would your people consider striking? Because if, if the Mexicans and the Filipinos went out together, maybe they could do something. And uh, so Cesar Chavez called his people together and had a vote, and they decided to support uh, the Filipinos. That's how it started in 1965. And it went on until 69, 70. And that's when they first signed the first um, uh, contracts. It was a long and hard strike. Uh, the most amazing thing to me when I began reading about it was that the growers just refused to just sit down and talk with them. And he would invite them to meetings and say, let's just sit down and talk about it. We'll share with you our grievances and you share with us. They just refused to come to any meetings. So it was a stalemate. And around 1968, the typical tactic of the growers uh, and this is very well um, documented in the grapes of wrath and in dubious battle uh, that Steinbeck wrote the typical strategy was to bring in thugs who would create havoc go among the strikers start beating them up harass them on the road stop them on the road all the things that you know I show in the book um, and that would get them so angry that the uh, farm workers would strike back. 
And so once violence broke out, then they could call in the sheriff and the sheriff would arrest them. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that was the cycle that was going Mm -hmm. on. And in 1968, it got so bad that um, some of the workers, farm workers threatened the younger men who were very angry at the way they're being treated, decided they were going to go out and get some rifles. And uh, next time the, the thugs come over to, to their house or, or meet them on the road and harass them or run them off the road or that they were going to start shooting. And so Cesar Chavez knew that if violence broke out, everything they'd worked for was gone. Yeah. Yeah. Giving, giving the state an excuse. Um, is there, was, what was the relationship like, or if there was one between the civil rights movement in the South that was happening at kind of the very same time and then the agriculture movement in the Central Valley. You know, it, that's quite interesting. Um, Martin Luther King had never visited uh, Cesar Chavez, but they corresponded. Okay. And um, so s- some of the volunteers, the young volunteers that were working in the movement uh, had come from the South and from the Southern movement um, and they understood how nonviolence, how effective it could be. So he, he did recruit from the, I can't say recruit, you know, they, they came, they heard about what he was doing and um, they joined the movement. So he had volunteers from all over. Yeah. Um, students from Berkeley, um, uh, dock workers from um, San Francisco who were union came over and, and helped out. And um, it was quite a, so the relationship was, was tenuous, but it was acknowledged. Yeah. And um, as you know, Martin Luther King was killed in 68. Yeah. Um, Had always planned to visit Delano and, um, but never got an opportunity. And so but he was visited by Bobby Kennedy twice and um, uh, which I, I make part of the book. Yeah. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, kind of what I view as the two Californias, you know, the, there's the California that's uh, what people think about in California, you know, beaches and then Silicon Valley and Hollywood. Um, and then there's the other California, which is uh, these towns along this, central vein uh that follows the central valley um that feed the world but also have uh just really striking poverty um and a lot of issues um why do you uh, if you if you were talking to someone that maybe lives in san francisco and los angeles um why why would they want to learn about the central valley what what why is it important to understand the central valley uh, for someone who's not from there Oh, that's a, a really good question. Um, why is it important to learn about the Central Valley? I think it's why I write historical fiction, because I think it's important for us to understand our past. Uh, most Californians, I won't say most, but there was many years where most Californians were imports and not natives. Um, and so the shininess of central California, or let's say Silicon Valley, uh, 
you know, they're just, the shininess rubs off as soon as you get, you know, over that, um, that hump and into the central Valley. It's, it's, it's a completely different world. It's not a world of high rises. It's not a world of whiz bang technology. It's a world of stoop labor. And uh, it's a completely different world. And this was the trouble that I had in selling this book in New York. You know, who's interested in reading about this? And um, uh, they liked the writing and they just thought, you know, how are we going to sell a book like this? So I didn't think about those things when I was uh, writing it because I thought it was an important book to write. Um, I think it's important for people that um, enjoy where we are at today to understand our history. Mm -hmm. And California has a rich history, not just of exploitation or, or experimentation. I mean, gosh, the, the, the brilliant people that we have here in California that are pushing the boundaries of, of every science, they all eat off a table that has been provided by stoop labor somewhere. Yeah. And um, uh, I just think that's how can, maybe that's the reason why um, history is so important. Mm -hmm. I mean, how can we truly appreciate where we're at if we don't understand where we've come from? Um, I think it's a product of contemporary education that, that education is so compartmentalized. We used to get an education to understand the world better, but that's not the way it is. Now you have to, you really do need to focus on, you know, a particular trade and Young people today and most people are so focused um, on what they're doing, they don't really understand where they came from. I, th- I think it's important for us to understand our heritage. That's that's the best I can do. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I didn't write an urban I novel. Agree more. <laughs> Pardon? I said, obviously, I couldn't agree more. And, uh, you know, well, you see it with, with middle grade kids. I mean, yeah. um, I don't know, was their focus more? Is it different from the way it used to be? Um, yeah, with kids these days, yeah, it's. I mean, our culture is a, is 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 a kind of I, I view as kind of a futurist culture. We're excited by things like SpaceX and companies that are trying to push us into the future and technology and what's the latest thing. And um, yeah, it's it's always a struggle of relevance, you know. And um, I think I think kids do want to understand why things are the way they are. Um, you know, maybe even as a, uh, as a tool to change it, but to at least understand why. Um, and that's been the way that I've tried to, uh, connect them to histories, looking at the world around them and saying, why does it exist like this? You know, um, and that's, you know, there's a lot of things like that because I work and teach in the central Valley that, um, we can look around us and say, well, why, why, why is there so much poverty here? And why, why do we have higher rates of asthma and, you know, why, why does this stuff exist around us? And that, you know, that, that is a way in, but you're right. Um, connecting people to history is, is a challenge. It's not something that's as exciting as the newest iPhone. Yes, it is not as exciting as the newest iPhone or the newest Tesla or, you know, uh, the newest launch into space. Um, 
kids, and I and rightly so. I mean, a lot of people have their their eyes on you know looking out, uh, you know, through the atmosphere up into space, and what's going to they're looking forward to that journey, um, and the journey back into time into how we got here and why it's the way it is. Um, I'm just hoping that there that the book would stimulate the interest in. Um, at least a little, give a little bit of understanding of what it's like to live during that time and experience these thoughts. That's, that was my impetus for writing the book. Yeah. And I think you achieved that. I think you achieved something similar to uh, what the experience I have when I read Raymond Chandler and I'm suddenly transported uh, back to the twenties and thirties in LA and him driving up those Hollywood Hills uh, to go, you know, visit a crime scene, you know, and that's, that's, that honestly, I mean, that's what, uh, I forget the name of the author that writes those long tomes about uh, building cathedrals in the 12th century. Um, Ken Follett. Yeah, Ken Follett. My favorite yeah. historical novelist, yeah. So it's, it's, I think those are the ways that you can transport people, and I think it works. And connecting to that, um, what was, what was the process like for writing a historical novel uh, in terms of the research and, and trying to get it right? Well, you, um, trying to get it right was, was really important to me because there are still a lot of people around who worked with Cesar Chavez, and um, I, I was very aware of, uh, you know, you can get criticized for, for a book because maybe the plot doesn't work, but I didn't want to be criticized for the book not getting the facts right about what actually happened and what Cesar Chavez would say. And, um, but I also wanted to include some of the voices of the growers. I tried to anyway. Yeah. And I tried to find something they had written. Um, I tried to talk to some of them. Um, the players that were there then have all, all passed. And I thought, well, surely they wrote about it or, and, you know, they weren't the type of people that would write about it. So I did find an archive in a library uh, in Delano of about 15 years of clipping that a librarian had done uh, in a cardboard box of all the opinion pieces and articles. And that was part of the conversation that I included in the book. You know, the, the fear over uh, communism the fear over a, a communist takeover of agriculture. Um, you know, there was a real palpable fear during those days of, of um, red baiting and uh, atomic war. I mean, think about it. We, we got so close to it during, you know, 63, 62 with the Bay of Pigs. And um, so the research was, took me a long time. Because there is no um, place where you could go and find all of this. So you have to look. And I didn't know this in the beginning, but by the end, I can say today that the best source for um, information on characters was in used bookstores. And um, um, some of the grape growers, um, and not about writing, not about labor, but about raising grapes and the struggles they had with the banks, had written some 
some um, self-published books, um, articles. That's where I found Sugar Duncan in a book on um, Hispanic movement. Mm -hmm. uh, Hispanic Voices, I still have it somewhere on my shelf, uh, in California. And there was a group of essays, and in there was one essay written by um, an Anglo farmer who tried to change things in the 50s. <clears throat> he made a speech to the Farm Association, Western Growers, um, advocating a different approach to working with the farm, work, farm workers. Um, better pay, better housing. Um, how can people that pick our food not afford to, to uh, purchase the food? That type of thing. And he was run out of the valley. So that aspect of it is true. Yeah. Um, he wasn't a gambler, but I, you know, um, I kind of molded things together to make it a little more exciting. Yeah. But <laughs> there was always voices of dissent, and they were usually the minor players. What I mean by dissent, that said, you know, we, we have to do better for uh, the workers in the valley. And um, but the big players were pretty intransigent. They they didn't want to move, and um, and had some to do with what they claimed were international trade. You know, um, could they afford to pay <clears throat> better wages that would raise? <clears throat> excuse me, a uh, a crate of grapes twenty five cents or a package of grapes, 25 cents. Um, so this, this is, these, these were some of the issues and I tried to work those into the book. Um, but other issues were just plain racial, you know, mm -hmm. there are workers, we take care of them. They, they, they live a notch above um, how they would live in their homeland. And that's good enough. Yeah. Well, um, I enjoyed the research process. Um, oh, and the, the final thing was that just before publication, my publisher wanted me to get a forward from someone went from the Cesar Chavez Foreign and I was I was really concerned. You know, I did the best I could to make sure that these words would represent, you know, his thoughts and words well. And I was able to get Mark Grossman, who worked with Cesar Chavez for many years, to read it. He helped me make a few changes, mm -hmm. and um, it's been very well received uh, by them. That's that's amazing. Well, yeah. I, I I know that. I mean, I I'm I'm not certainly not an expert, but um, I felt transported when I was reading it. And I excellent. I, I thank you for for putting the time in. And I know researching can be fun, but it also is tedious, and it is not something that uh, is just a it's not, it's not like writing, you know, a non-historical novel where you're just, where you're just creating your world. It's, which is complicated in its own right, but this yes. is, this is, it's, it's, it's a different animal. Um, so what's next for you, John? Do uh, you have another book project coming up or? Uh, well, I would like to write the sequel to this, but I, but I may, um, I'm going to continue writing historical novels, but I may move to another uh, era. I think America, American history is so rich. Uh, there's so many um, areas that have not been uh, excavated, yeah. and um, it's it's a it's a huge market. I probably would have a bigger market if I wrote 
romance uh, historical novels, uh, but that doesn't seem to be my cup of tea. But I really am, am so impressed with what Ken Follett did in um, what he calls his New Century um, series, mm-hmm. starting with World War One and going through World War Two, going from Europe, um, from Britain uh, to Germany to the U.S., and um, it gave me a lot of great ideas. I think he's a tremendous writer. Um, he does include a lot more romance than I did, so I'm going to learn from that. Yeah. Um, but I'm really looking at the, um, the American Revolutionary period. That's great. Well, I just um, I'm powering through Rick, Rick Atkinson's new book about the American Revolutionary Period, and that's been that's been great. And um, speaking of books, uh, as a final question before we wrap up today, um, if someone's interested in learning more about the history of the Central Valley and uh, the Grape Strikes and Cesar Chavez, are there any books that you'd recommend as a starting place in terms of historical books? Well, his original biographer was uh, a, a man by the name of. Um, uh, Jacques Levy, and uh, he was a, uh, you know, a journalist who early on saw the significance of what Cesar Chavez was doing, and um, he approached Cesar Chavez, asked if he could write his biography. So it's a very authoritative biography, and Jacques Levy actually lived there and witnessed these things. It, this is not after the fact, and it's an authorized biography, so... Um, that's a really good place to start. I don't think you can go wrong with that. And um, what's the title of that? Is that uh, Cesar Chavez uh, or Jacques Levy? Jacques Levy. L a v l e v y. Got it. Um, I believe it's just uh, the life of Cesar Chavez, but I will give it to you real quick. Um, So in the meantime, um, what is Rick, Rick Atkinson's book? Um, Rick Atkinson's book, he, Rick Atkinson wrote uh, a trilogy um, about World War II. Um, and it's, it's, I've only read uh, one of those. It's called the Liberation Trilogy. Um, but... Uh, he decided for his next project, he was going to take on uh, the revolutionary period. And so the, his, the revolutionary book is called The British Are Coming, uh, The War for America. Um, and it's just... Uh, These are nonfiction books. These are nonfiction, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's just... just a, he's an amazing storyteller, and uh, I recommend all of his stuff. So Levy's book is Cesar Chavez, Autobiography of La Casa. And La Casa is the cause, the cause of um, social justice for the the growers. And can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. What is, in Fresno, you, you, you teach there, you live there. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there's a lot of poverty there? Yeah. Um, You know, there is visibly poverty. uh, Well, it's, it's pretty, you know, we, this could be a whole other podcast, but it's um, things are pretty segregated uh, in the Central Valley. Um, and it's partly the effect of sprawl and the way 
you know, new developments, housing developments are pushed further and further out of the city. Um, and then as, as people uh, migrate to these new developments and you know, move out of their older homes, um, there's a lot of uh, kind of, I, wanna, I don't want to say the word decay, but, you know, um, as property values decline and people move further out of the city, uh, you create these pockets, you know, where, uh, where there is poverty. And, and so, you know, it just really depends on uh, zip codes in Fresno and like in a lot of cities, you know, that's, that's true. Um, but it's really stark, um, when you hmm. visit. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, and, uh, and, and it's a, there's a lot of, um, um, a large population of laborers there, right. And, um, right. farm workers and, and as you mentioned, a high incidence of asthma, uh, some places higher incidence of cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the highlights of this whole journey has been, um, I got, an, I got an invitation to go down to Keene or up to Keene, which is east of Bakersfield, mm-hmm. and meet with uh, Paul Chavez and his son. And we had lunch together, and I gave him some books, and he gave us a tour. And um, one of the things that, that he told me, you know, was that the, the issues are still the same. Wage, working conditions, pesticides, uh, pesticide use. Um, very high rate of illnesses among the, the farm workers due to the use of pesticides. Yeah. So these issues are, you know, they're still fighting the same battle, um, but they do have the law now on their side. They can do collective bargaining uh, and collective agreements, and there's more civility to it. There's, there's not a war going on. So uh, that was a very exciting moment. And uh, I was, he really liked the book. And um, from what I heard from others, he's recommending it to others. So that's that's good. And that's where we'll end today. And I recommend you pick up his book on Amazon. Uh, where else can they find uh, your work, John? Uh, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, um, a lot of independent bookstores. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, John D. Simone, author. Okay. And Jordan, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for coming on the show. We appreciate you, John. Take care. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll be back to our normal broadcasting with uh, an episode on the ranchos. So stay tuned for that and have a wonderful week.